This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. This week for our ongoing series, Closing the Gap, we've dug into disparities in mental health care. Who has it? Who doesn't? And how the pandemic is changing how we think about it, talk about it, and handle this issue. Well, yesterday we heard about the fallout from former Mayor Rahm Emanuel's controversial move in 2012 to close half of the city's 12 mental health clinics. We also talked with Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart about the impact it had on his jail population. We kept struggling with the city because at the time we kept asking, I go, what are your metrics? What is it that's leading you to say this is a better route? And there, we, not, we got literally nothing back, nothing. I was like, OK, can you walk me through how this is going to be helpful? how this is going to be better, how it's going to be anything. And we got nothing. Then we spoke to someone on the ground about how the move affected care. What happened in 2016 is that the coalition came together through this expanded mental health service program to say, hey, let's vote to stay in the community, that's a part of the community, that the community has a say-so, and it's meeting the exact needs of the community. Well, today we'll talk to professionals challenging the status quo on mental health treatment. First, let's look at cultural and racial disparities in accessing and providing quality mental health care, especially for family therapy. Diana Castaneda is Director of Youth and Crisis Services at Community Counseling Centers of Chicago, where she oversees clinical teams on the west and northwest sides of Chicago for adults and children. Diana, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. Diana, let's start a bit more generally. Tell us who experiences mental health problems. Well, the short answer is many, many people. Uh, To give you statistics, though, in uh, 2017 through 2018, 19% of adults experienced a mental illness, which was an increase of 1.5 million people over the previous year's data set. Wow. And what did that tell you? Well, it could be two things. One, people are actually experiencing more mental illness or we're doing a better job of tracking it. Uh, If it's more people experiencing mental illness, not great news, but if it's that more people are willing to answer questions honestly, participate in research, recognize their own symptoms, then it's actually a positive trend that we're able to discuss these things more openly with each other. Have there been significant changes in those trends because of the pandemic? Yes. So during the pandemic, about four in 10 adults in the U.S. have reported symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, which is a share that has been largely consistent up from one in 10 adults who reported these symptoms from January to June 2019. So during the pandemic, adults have consistently been reporting an increase in anxiety and depression. Yeah. So, uh, you know, adults are seeing the increase. And of course, as parents, and I can speak for myself, we're also seeing an increase in our our children. Um, I have two children who are 12 and 14, 
And never before this year, Diana, have I seen these symptoms really play out the way that they have. Um, so my question then is, is when is the right time for, for the family unit to, to seek treatment? Well, any time that parents have concern, what we don't want to perpetuate in the mental health field is that you have to reach a certain level of a crisis point or a certain level of deterioration of functioning or a certain level of depression in order to seek treatment. So really, therapy can be a space where children can come, families can come, adults can come to speak to whatever is going on in their lives, hopefully before it gets pretty bad. If the family as a unit is struggling, when whatever the family has been doing is no longer working, it's a great time for the family to come as a whole to seek treatment, to see what changes can be made to work more effectively together. And when you say what the, what the family is doing, if what the family is doing is no longer working, what do you mean specifically? What are some of the things that people try before therapy? Yeah, so they might try, for example, um, to get their child to open up with a quite a bit of pressure. They might try acting out of fear and trying to shut down some of the things they imagine their, their child is going through. They might be fighting with each other because of anxiety or depression, and, and those are things that often, just out of our humanity, are, are common reactions, but it turns out that they're not actually helpful for the process of a, figuring out what's really going on, and, and B, for the process of healing. So what role then can family therapy play in uh, decreasing racial disparities when it comes to access to mental health? Yes, family therapy can play a huge role in decreasing racial disparities. So generally speaking, there's more hesitation uh, in the Black and Latinx community to seek out mental health treatment for a lot of valid reasons. And so when we engage the whole family and we make families and parents feel like they are a part of the solution, that we will support them as well, it can increase buy-in to therapy in general. Uh, when parents see that we are not trying to replace them or override their authority, it can help them understand the process of therapy more. Black and brown communities, there tends to be more of a history of intergenerational trauma that is often not understood that way. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have gone through tremendous trauma that they have adapted to and survived in the way that they could. But then we see generations later, generations later, those coping mechanisms no longer being adaptive to the current circumstances. And so these kids are struggling because maybe the way parents or grandparents handled their trauma is not the way that they are finding is helpful to handle their current trauma. And so the process of healing really is much more effective if as a family, we can get together and admit we've been through some really difficult things in our lives, not just currently, but in the past. They're still impacting us. It's okay to talk about it, and we're going to get through this together. There's also an unfortunate trend that we often see towards mothers, African-American or Latinx mothers, where often their rights are trampled on or they're not listened to or they're not uh, believed. You know, we've seen this example when it comes to childbearing statistics among black women, for example. Serena Williams' story of trying to get the doctor to believe her her experience. And so this happens to a lot of black and brown mothers in a lot of settings. And so when we can engage the entire family in therapy, we can also champion their rights and help them cope with some of the systemic pressures that they're under to, quote-unquote, be better parents while the whole system is not always working 
in their favor. Diana, given the weight of everything that you just described, why do people of color face barriers to behavioral health services? So there's a a large and unfortunate history of institutional racism and discrimination against particularly black and and brown communities. And so what happens um, under those circumstances is that there's a trauma and a stress response. So it's put on the most basic level, it's when you burn your hand on the stove and you don't want to put your hand on the stove again. And so when you've seen yourself, your parents, your grandparents go through situations of being discriminated against, your kind of common sense response tells you, maybe I don't want to engage with those institutions again because they've been so harmful to me and my ancestors. And so it's a pretty normal response attached to mental health in in communities of color. And part of the reason is because we've approached traumatic things that people of color have gone through as very victim-blaming. We've said there's something wrong with you, even though a lot of things that have happened have been through no fault of their own. So instead of saying what's wrong with you, what we try to ask is what happened to you in therapy to help engage families and people so they understand that we just want to hear their story. We're not assuming something is wrong with them. We're not blaming them. We want to talk about what's happened in their lives that's made it hard to engage in in therapy. There's also um, language differences and and not enough uh, therapists in the field that that speak a lot of the languages that that we need for communities of color. Well, let's talk about the the therapists a a bit more because once, you know, people of color, you know, uh, get over this, the stigma that's associated with mental health and uh, seeking help for mental health, they look for someone who looks like them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about mm-hmm. culturally competent therapy. But the clinicians, uh, clinicians of color, they're facing barriers too. Yes. And so just generally speaking, I'm painting with a very broad brush. Um, clinicians of, of color often don't have, for example, as much intergenerational wealth and as much as uh, financial safety nets to, to rely on. And so one of the basic barriers that they face is earning a livable wage versus maybe pursuing the career that they thought they were going to have. If they want to work with other communities of color, that's, that's great. And because of the systemic problems in, in our healthcare system, they often get paid less because they're working with people who are poorer and whose insurance companies do not pay out as much. So clinicians of color have that dilemma to to face. Do I want to do this thing that I am passionate about or do I want to earn a living wage? As well as, you know, going along the financial things, often a lot of burdens with student loans because you have to have a master's degree in order to practice in this field. And then generally speaking, when we're working with clients, for example, who have experienced racial trauma, clinicians of color are often going through that process themselves of having to cope with their own racial trauma, their own difficulties, and kind of how their stories may line up with their clients, but they're in a position where their job is to take care of clients and not to process their own trauma in the space of their client's therapy. So what are some specific techniques or models that you use in order to address cultural differences when treating families? So the the first step in, in terms of specific techniques is we always want to engage families, and that means understanding the world through their eyes and being careful not to make assumptions but encouraging them to tell their stories. We want to make sure that we use evaluation and treatment processes that 
are culturally competent and that have been researched in a variety of populations, not just a standard white population, which is often where the research takes place. Uh, on the more basic level, it's very, very important that clinicians always do their own work around their cultural understanding of themselves and others before engaging with clients. So that way they are not sitting in a room with a client and making all sorts of assumptions about a client's culture. And again, if it's a clinician that's a person of color, they need to work on what happens when this other same race client makes assumptions about me that may or may not be true. Or for white clinicians, a lot of them want to do this work to, to help the less fortunate and they need a, a supervision to be able to make sure that there's not this perpetuation of this white savior model happening where yeah. it's like, you know, people of color need white people to come and save them when in fact it's not true. Usually people of color would need the same resources that are provided to others and then they can do just as well as, as anyone else. And representation doesn't always mean competence, right? Exactly. And, and so on, on that level, what we want to make sure to do as it's just a field in general is making sure that all clinicians of color who may not have as many resources as their white counterparts have the education and the training to be able to be as competent as anyone else to have that, that opportunity. When you're thinking about treating multi-generational family units, you mentioned this earlier, tell us some of the major challenges there. On the most basic level, the, one of the basic challenges is there's so many people involved and so many people in the room, and so containing the, the chaos, retreating the chaos, or observing the chaos takes on a life of its own. But what we know is that child development is influenced by interactions between parents and grandparents. So when we're treating multi-generational family units, we're talking about the relationship between the child and the parents and the child and the grandparents and the grandparents and the parents. Oftentimes we see that grandparents through their life experiences now understand a lot more about parenting than maybe they had an opportunity when they were parents. And so they can often take on the role of the head of household of the family and the impact that that has on parental authority is often something that needs to be explored. What are your thoughts on uh, separate counseling for for the children that are going through specific yeah. issues? I, I'm thinking, I've mentioned before on, on Reset uh, about um, an evening uh, therapy session that my, my daughters now do as part of a group, a group of girls their age. Do you recommend programs like that? Yes. And most of the time when it comes to specific therapy situations, the answer is it depends. It's important that kids have their private space to be able to process what's going on for themselves. It's important they have peer support, so support groups are great. And it's also important whenever we get the chance to engage the parents and help them foster a relationship in which they can go to the parents to talk about what's going on. The, the thing about therapy is that it typically takes place for one hour once a week, whereas there are 168 hours in a week. A lot of that time is spent with the parents, and mm -hmm. so whenever we get the opportunity to strengthen relationships and trust between parents and children, we want to take that opportunity because the parents are likelier to be there at any moment, um, whereas therapy doesn't necessarily happen when you need it. It happens when it's scheduled. Diana, what's your message to people listening right now of any color to encourage them to reach out for help and especially include the children or their own parents? It's 
okay to not be okay. It's okay to, to reach out for help and to have a space where anything can be said. It's very rare that we get that opportunity in life, and therapy is a place where you can come and say anything to us, and we can work through that. That's Diana Castaneda, Director of Youth and Crisis Services at Community Counseling Centers of Chicago. Diana, thanks so much. Thank you. Let's talk more about the idea of challenging norms when it comes to mental health therapy. Historically, much emphasis has been placed on talk therapy as the key tool to mental health healing. But research and ancient knowledge tells us that your entire body holds vital answers to healing from trauma. One such method is movement therapy. And with us to share their experience with the healing power of movement therapy is actor and director Melissa Lorraine. She's co-founding artistic director of Chicago-based Theater Y. And joining Melissa is Nadia Pillay. She's also an actress and a Theater Y ensemble member. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Nadia, I'll start with you. Can you tell us your interest in the field of movement therapy for trauma rehabilitation? How did that come about? It just came about me entering healing spaces and noticing my discomfort in always being the always the person of color. So I went in and looked for how do I discover yoga and how do I engage in yoga that's centered towards people of color. And I discovered Egyptian yoga, which is correctly known as comedic yoga. And it was taught to me by a teacher from Chicago, and his name is Yasser Rahotep, and his English name, I would say, is Alfred Lawrence, something like that. So I got my certification in comedic yoga, and it is a wellness system that was practiced in ancient Egypt. And it is distinct in that the geometric movements and postures that you often see on the hieroglyphics, in the hieroglyphics in the temple walls, is actually healing movements. And so when you take those geometric movements and postures and it's paired intentionally with inhalations and the exhalations of the breath, it generates the bioenergetic system in the body. Okay. So that energy movement in the body is what really promotes the healing. And so it connected me to my body and on a much deeper level than other forms of yoga. The mental adjustment was very profound for me in that it took me into my body in a different way. And Nadia, I appreciate your breakdown of comedic yoga for us, but could you expound on it a bit more on the bioenergetic philosophy and method? Yeah, the energy of trauma is stored in the body's tissue until it is released. So this stored trauma typically leads to, you know, how the body will erode and the health of the body will deplete. So the technique with the bioenergetic system and moving the breath specifically and moving the movement specifically and intentionally, it breaks that block that's sitting in the energetic system, sort of like your chi. And in comedic yoga, we call it your shu, your life force. In controlling the breath with purpose and in directing it with the movements, 
it's almost like it's the level of self-control and self-regulation that you bring to the body because the body is not just likened unto a temple it is and so when you step into that and and reclaim dominion over this temple it brings a different level of empowerment to one's practice and to begin to start feeling that energy system and feel it moving in the hands it's actually palpable it's quite remarkable and once i felt it in my hands i knew i was practicing something that was way beyond anything that i've learned in the realm of yoga and so yeah i really began to respect this wellness system it's not even i wouldn't even call it yoga because it's a sanskrit word it's a wellness system and to respect the energy of the body and that's paramount to one's healing nadia is all trauma the same at its core? Are, are all solutions applicable to all people? I mean, we've largely addressed trauma therapy, but often centering the white experience, which, you know, leaving white experts to postulate, deduce, and diagnose. And so whiteness leaves no room for the gradations, the nuances, the minutiae of life. And so the Black Lives Matter movement has forced us to look at those gradations and reckon with the truth. So the same dysfunction and behavior that leads to trauma in the white body can exist in the black bodies, but black bodies must add racial trauma to this for the sheer fact that we live in a racialized society. So there is a, um, a yoga practitioner, a teacher, and an author by the name of Dr. Gail Parker, and she writes in her book, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race Bias, Stress and Trauma, mm-hmm. how living in a racialized world affects all of us from the stress you know the trauma on the daily lived experience of the racial wounding of the people who endure it to like she says white fragility which she identifies as an often unacknowledged aspect of this racialized stress and trauma that we all experience so it affects us in different ways but we are all affected and who gets to talk about it that needs to shift because how it affects the black body is very specific and it it needs very specific care and and space and nurture and attention. Melissa, could you tell us something about your understanding of the needs of the traumatized body and the practice you have offered? Sure, I came at it from a very personal angle. Um, I survived a violent crime four years ago and shut down, dissociated completely, was diagnosed with PTSD stepped out of my own work in the theater because I I didn't know how to play anymore inside of a traumatized body. And so I had a lot of personal motivation to try to figure out how to put it back together. Um, And I was very fortunate to be invited to Serbia for um, some really personal care from some long-term choreographer-dancer collaborators named Dinesh and Henny. Uh, mainly Henny Varga was my partner in that work. So we would do a, a lot of trial and error. She would try various practices from all over the world. We discovered a great deal of exercises that came out of Japan after the bombs were dropped. And that makes a lot of sense that they were undergoing a sort of national PTSD and exploring how they could re-begin. Nadia and I have talked a lot about how to get back to a place of wonder, um, to be able to wander again. There's something in the body that has kind of shut down. It has been taught a lesson that the world is unsafe. And so in my personal experience, what my body really needed was a counter experience 
another set of hands that were caring for me physically to counterbalance the very sharp, aggressive lesson that my body had received from another set of hands. So that became uh, my own entrance into the conversation, and because I was given so much personal care, I felt really compelled to offer what I had learned to other harmed parties and ultimately discovered in my own healing process that responsible parties have undergone trauma, uh, the same trauma, and are perpetuating it because they are no longer inside of a whole self. And so maybe the more important work became offering this movement therapy to um, responsible parties inside of Chicago's prisons. And that process of offering this practice to inmates uh, really became sort of the new platform on which I am continuing to investigate, trying to understand how I can offer something to these individuals who are serving time. Melissa, what do you think is holding society or psychiatry away from some of these ancient solutions? There's a lot of emphasis that I think uh, modern psychiatry and psychology places on talk therapy and trauma lives in a portion of the brain that does not have access to language. I don't think that most people are aware of that. So when they enter into a discussion about the trauma, they are already bypassing its epicenter. And so the experience of exploring uh, your, your trauma, whatever it is that you're carrying, without words is extraordinarily liberating. It's much more effective uh, the process is more frightening, maybe. That's maybe also what's keeping people away from it, is that it's not as containable. It's harder to report on. It's harder to chart progress. It lives in a land, perhaps, that uh, women are more comfortable in. I don't know. Most of my experience in these conversations have been with women. And so I do feel like the intuitive gender is probably more inclined in this direction as well, which is no doubt another reason why we haven't arrived here sooner as a male-led industry. So I'm thrilled to be in discourse with someone like Nadia to expand even my definition. I really entered into the investigation through Bessel van der Kolk, who is the leading expert in the field of movement therapy. Um, he wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and has done a lot of research to indicate that language is just not going to be very effective in this discussion. And so it feels a little frightening, a little new age. And it's fascinating that Nadia was also brought into the conversation through her hands, because in my, in my work in the prisons, this is definitely a foreign concept to the incarcerated individuals I'm working with. And so I have also used the energy that you can feel in your hands to sort of perk their interest, their curiosity, to make them wonder again at the vehicle that they are carrying and how little they understand it. When you feel that energy in your fingertips, it's undeniable. And without exception, it really gives pause to an individual who's kind of written off all of these uh, vocabularies as new age or, or not really for them. Um, there's no getting away from it once you experience it physically. Then you're curious in a new way. And I think that breaks down a lot of walls and, and inhibitions. 
you were sharing, Melissa, about, you know, that language doesn't do it justice, but movement is a language in, in and of itself. So I teach yoga to little children and I'm talking toddlers. And so today they were just all over the place. And I had one and this is through Zoom and I'm watching him and I'm watching him just rolling all the way around. And the teacher was getting upset because he wasn't paying attention. I was like, listen, they usually tend to listen well, but they, they're, not li they're not listening to my words today. And I'm watching how they're moving. They're not moving how my body's moving. They're moving according to how their body wants to move. And they were moving in yoga poses that were not how I instructed them to do it in that moment, but they intuited for themselves where they were going to be. Because according to the teacher, they were just not in the mood today. They were just, you know, they had their little attitude. But in that moment of chaos, they were actually doing their yoga. They had their own practice and I couldn't fight with it. And I actually was just there in awe, just present to that's what their body wants to speak right now. And who am I mm -hmm. to say anything different? So, Melissa, what do you hope such a practice might mean to a person who's serving time? Oh, I mean, as Nadia was talking, I was remembering an individual. Um, we do something called authentic movement, which was actually a practice that was offered to Holocaust survivors as well. And it's listening to the movement that your body instinctively wishes to make. And this gentleman who uh, engaged in the exercise rediscovered a little dance that he had when he was four or five, whenever he would be standing and waiting, his body would do this little dance and he hadn't done it in 40 years. But when invited to listen again to what his body was asking for, it came to him like a flood and the joy that came over his face, I mean, it's really such a thrill to observe an individual chart out their own course of care because they have so much wisdom that has been buried for so many reasons, buried under intellect and trauma and society, that his own body had the key. And it's just about the invitation, guiding an individual, inviting an individual to listen to themselves in a new way. Um, the other thing that brought me into the prison was that when I was in my worst place uh, personally, I felt time to be an enemy. It was either moving too quickly or too slow. And I developed a really negative relationship to time. And when I started doing some of the practices out of Japan, some of the slow tempo out of Japan, I discovered dominion over my own experience of time. I could make time go faster. I could make time go slower. And I thought, wow, what would that mean to an individual serving time if I could offer them dominion over that thing that we perceive to be an objective thing called time? And that's been really delightful to observe them any kind of reclaiming of dominion. I My heart is broken. The more time I spend in our correctional system, the more of an obvious misnomer that is. There is nothing rehabilitative about our correctional system. And so any tools that I can offer them that give them any dominion over themselves, over their body, declaring that they still have an independence of being, no matter what their environment is, they still have independence. Melissa, how does the institution respond to this kind of work? With real disdain, um, <laughs> there is a real sense that 
we are wasting our time. I mean, that's what they express to us when we come inside. Not all of them across the board, but you really understand the way that the correction officers are uh, viewing their population and viewing any such investment in their care. Again, part of why I am no longer able to view it as any sort of rehabilitative institution, there's just a... I don't even want to quote some of the things that you hear as you're coming in to do your work. Um, And they watch with varying degrees of, um, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, they're drawn in, they're curious, it's strange. They expect the inmates to reject it. And when they don't, you know, we're, we're watching, we're watching a slow progression of curiosity. This is a new wave and not something that they are familiar with or exposed to. Well, before we let you go, this question is really for the both of you. I'll start with you, Nadia. Tell us how the pandemic has affected you and put some of those thoughts within the context of movement therapy. Um, actually, there was this very interesting you said that because I found myself kind of antsy in terms of where and how far to move because I'm always on the go and there was a rhythm to the my rhythm of moving in the outside. So being on the inside, I had to one, be very mindful of all my blessings. So I had to kind of keep my complaints to a minimum, but I've actually gotten so much better in my meditation practice in terms of keeping the body still and just moving the body when it wants to and mm-hmm. being moving the body when it needs to then finding the joy in in a simple walk again and finding simple uh, joys in just regular movements in life and because i'm constricted in space and yeah. and being grateful for the limited amount of space i do have yeah and and you know i've also had a back injury which kind of limited my range of movement. So that put me further in my stubborn mode was like, okay, what more can I do to move? Right. You know, so everything in the pandemic has pushed me to stillness and I've tried to figure out how can I steal micro moments to just feel movement. Walk. Yeah. Melissa, how about you? How's it been this past year? Yeah. I mean, I feel strangely isolated. I think we're all in a sort of physical hibernation and Similar to Nadia, walking became um, my religion. And again, that brings to mind the mobility equity issues of our city and how many people can't take a walk in their neighborhood and what a different experience of the pandemic they're having. Um, But generally knowing that the city is lacking synchronicity right now, I think I heard Bessel van der Kolk responding even to the pandemic and what the body is asking for and the fact that in Italy people started singing off of their balcony together because what they missed was a synchronicity with their neighbor. There's just a, a real isolation that is not good for the communal soul. And so when we are able to come back into any sort of synchronicity with one another, I have a feeling that's going to be what we crave and what we need 
to heal together as a community. And I have a feeling you've got many, many listeners now wanting to Google movement therapy and and find ways that they can engage in this practice as well. Uh, That's co-founding artistic director of Chicago-based Theater Y, Melissa Lorraine, and actress in Theater Y ensemble member Nadia Palais. Melissa, Nadia, thanks for your time. Thank Thank you. you. And that's today's Reset. Tomorrow, we wrap up this edition of our Closing the Gap series with a look at new ways the city is approaching emergency mental health calls. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.